The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Do you know how many times the air changes in your house every hour? Turns out I have no idea. And this week on When the Facts Change, we're going to find out how many times the air in your house changes on average for a normal, standard, 100-year-old house. Turns out it could change 20 times in an hour. No wonder things can get a bit drafty and cold and mouldy at times in Aotearoa's housing stock. 20 times an hour the air goes in and it goes out. Turn off the heater and within 15 minutes you've got a cold house. But just imagine if you had a home where the air only changed twice per hour and it was controlled in a way and cleaned. This is all about how you design a house with the right sort of thermal envelope that's the word I've learnt in this week's episode, a thermal envelope for a home. This week we speak to Liam Wallace. He's a founder of Hip V Hype, a design company in Melbourne. And his firm worked on the creation of a bunch of apartments in Brunswick, in inner Melbourne. For those who are familiar with Melbourne, it's the sort of groovy Cuba street style part of Melbourne and it's a fantastic place to wander around and there are so many apartment buildings that look like great places to live and one of them is the Nightingale Project which is a not-for-profit sustainable net carbon zero set of buildings that were designed with people in mind and not the profits of a developer. It meant for example that the two-bedroom departments only have one bathroom and they don't have stone-top benches or car parks. Turns out that's what you normally need to do. Well, that's what the real estate agents thought they needed to do or to have to flick some apartments onto the market and sprint away. They thought you needed two bedrooms, two bathrooms, stone-top benches and car parks. Turns out a lot of people don't necessarily want to live that way, and particularly in places like inner city Melbourne, and you'd hope places like inner city Auckland and Wellington, that there is decent public transport and people can walk around and cycle around and scooter around, not necessarily having a car. And they want to live in a home where it doesn't use too much power to heat it or to cool it down. That's naturally comfortable. That's what we're going to talk about this week on When the Facts Change, how to build an apartment that is not only carbon neutral, but reduces the cost of heating and cooling, is healthier, 
and as part of a community. We really need these homes. And it's a real struggle at the moment to convince a whole bunch of people in up and down this motu that we need lots and lots and lots of these zero-carbon, medium-density homes that are within walking distance of schools and workplaces and all of the things you need to live in a city, like in a city Melbourne, where many New Zealanders are choosing to go at the moment because they can't get the sort of homes that are being built in places like Brunswick, certainly not in Wellington, which is, in my view, a tragedy of a place that has one of the lowest building consent rates in the country. And its most famous resident just spent millions of dollars to make sure some houses weren't built. We really need to build lots of homes, affordable homes that don't produce emissions in the long run, that are good places to live and don't necessarily cost the earth. This week on When the Facts Change, we talked to Liam Wallace about how he and a bunch of other people in Melbourne did it, the sorts of things they have to think about, in particular the thermal envelope, in trying to build these homes. And he talks about some of the things that are needed to make it happen. For example, a carbon tax, which they don't have in Australia, and certainly we should be thinking about something like that here too, given that our ETS doesn't seem to work very well. He also talks about the need for regulation, just to make sure that people actually have to try to build their homes with a decent thermal envelope, so that there are only two air changes per hour. This week on When the Facts Change. Well, welcome to When the Facts Change to Liam Wallace, who's speaking to us from Melbourne. Great to see you, Liam. Thanks, Bernard. Lovely to be here. Now, tell us about the Nightingale projects. These apartments that you helped develop and design and invest in, what do they look like? For someone in New Zealand who's thinking about apartments and inner city developments, tell us about the Nightingale project. Yeah, look, the, the Nightingale model project's got a really interesting history. Um, back back in Brunswick, uh, there, there was an original project called The Commons that had been developed by a developer called Small Giants, uh, and the architect behind that project, a company called Breathe, and um, the protagonist of the story, Jeremy McLeod, uh, had had been really the driving force behind this idea of building better quality, more sustainable apartments uh, located close to where people wanted to be, essentially. Um, and that project just really is the catalyst for uh, both the Nightingale model and uh, a number of other uh, similar projects that have emerged, particularly in Melbourne uh, here in Australia, over the past you know five to ten years. Um, so really that project demonstrated that some of the traditional advice that had been weaving its way through the development industry around what consumers wanted and how that was being delivered to developers and then and then working its way into built form but perhaps might not be exactly what a consumer cohort wanted um, so a good example of that is the old adage from a real estate agent that a two-bedroom apartment must have two bathrooms and um, and 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 uh, and you must have a car and and, and you must have stone bench tops and just just these kind of ideas that that perhaps you know helped real estate agents to sell the first few and uh, apartments in any given projects and make their money and 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 off they went off off in, into the horizon. So 
Really, the Commons was defined by a first principles-based approach to apartment living. How could an apartment building be designed to feel like a home? Um, and bringing, bringing materiality and, and the way that you circulate through the building um, really to the forefront in, in the way that we think about kind of commercial scale six, seven, eight-storey buildings, um, bringing you in the front door, timber windows, uh, letterboxes off to the side, glazed stairwells, really this idea of reduction too. Um, could, could, we, could we include less in the building but in a more considered way? you know, to reduce, I guess, the embodied carbon piece uh, in the projects. So that, that was the catalyst. And so um, give us a sense of, you know, what you ended up with. So if it's not a two-bedroomed, two-bathroomed apartment with stone bench tops and a car park, what do you get? You know, I think two, two bedrooms with a single bathroom then opens up more space for a living area. Um, so instead of, we, we like to say, instead of having two bathrooms where you can't hardly dry yourself without hitting your elbows on the walls, um, you, you're getting a, a genuine kind of family-sized bathroom, but then taking that the area of that second bathroom and putting it back into your living area. So, you know, your, your dining table is not sitting on top, of, um, on top of your living area, as an example. So it's just that spatial planning piece. Um, you know, the way that landscape integrates in with apartment layouts and, and, and focusing much more in the way that landscape integrates into the apartment uh, layout, the principles that uh, enable you to get your biggest bang for buck in terms of sustainability performance. So um, the way in which apartments are, are orientated, um, making sure that uh, west-facing windows in the southern hemisphere are are screened, um, you know, you get get huge amounts of heat load through west-facing windows. So you want to make sure they're screened adequately. Um, you know, fronting apartments as best as possible to northern aspects to maximise the benefits of, of solar heat gain. Sun in winter, making sure that sun's screened in uh, in summer, really limiting that heat gain and, and setting up the ability to have really comfortable apartments that use less energy and, um, you know, really do contribute to the, the health and well-being outcomes of their occupants. So how did you minimise the carbon footprint in the building of uh, these apartments? Because it's something that hasn't been talked about much in the past. There's been some more and more talk about, you know, how much energy the building uses while it's alive, so to speak. But the actual embedded carbon, how did you think about that? What did you do that was different? Yeah, look... It, it, embodied, embodied carbon is, is sort of an ongoing task. I think at the very beginning of the Nightingale model and, and other projects that we've been associated with, our real focus was on 100% electric buildings. So we're really tackle, tackling the operational carbon piece. So there's really two parts to that. You, you use passive design principles to get a really efficient thermal envelope, um, an envelope that uses less energy essentially to heat and cool apartments. Can you give us an idea of what those principles are? Yeah, so th thermal envelope, so window placements, window sizes, um, insulation to walls, thermal mass is, is a big one, so avoiding um, sun in particularly hotter months, hitting big bits of concrete that absorbs heat energy and, and then releases it uh, later in, uh, in the day. You, you, you want to be designing in a way that encourages uh, that that thermal energy to come into your envelope during winter, but in summer you really want to want to exclude that from your internal envelope. 
How do you do that? Because, you know, well, uh, Melbourne is a bit like Wellington in a way, you know, four seasons in one day, yeah. you know, that's, that's the thing. Uh, and it can be quite cold in winter, but, of course, on those sunny days in summer, and the idea that you've got the same building, it's not like it can get up on its feet and turn around <laughs> or anything. How do you make sure that the sun warms it up in winter but doesn't um, blow it out in summer? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really good question and it, it comes down to sun angles. So in summer, the sun sits higher. Uh, in winter, the sun sits lower. So in winter, the sun angle will penetrate further into a building opening. In summer, the sun angle's a lot steeper. So you can use uh, external um, shading elements and they can be angled in a way that can prevent summer sun from entering a building envelope. And in winter, um, the sun will actually come in below those shading elements. So you can have static elements that, that really, you, you know, encourage those, um, those qualities um, throughout the year. And um, you say that they're 100% um, uh, uh, renewable energy and um, what does what does that mean does that mean um solar panels or how, how do you do it yeah look we so there's a reduction piece so by building a really efficient envelope you get a reduction in energy use um so we've got a thing called NatHERS here in australia which is an energy rating uh um uh, legislated energy rating um, minimum standard is six stars uh, we're building apartments to eight and a half star plus um, the difference in energy use, to just to give you an idea, between a six-star apartment and an eight-and-a-half-star apartment is about 50% less energy um, in, in aggregate through the year. So it's a significant reduction um, in heating and cooling energy. Um, that's the first piece. So you want to reduce. The second piece is um, we, we have a, a, a legislated um, a definition of renewable energy here in Australia called green power. So what we do with our apartments is set up and in embedded network, um, the embedded network bulk purchases green power and then um, we sub-meter within the project. So we meter the use of each particular apartment. And in some instances where we have electric vehicles, we can sub-meter the electric vehicle use as well. And just every month um, an occupant or a resident gets their electrical bill, it will tell them how much energy their electric vehicles used, how much energy they've used for heating and cooling, how much energy they've used for hot water. And then in, in addition to that, how much energy, um, how much benefit they've, they've received from um, solar panels on the roof um, that we install. And the solar panels typically... It's, it's an interesting one on inner city sites because you've usually got quite small footprints, quite small roof area. So the solar energy that can, you can generate is typically around 10% on a standard inner city site. So 10% of a building's use throughout a year can be generated on site. Um, you use thermal efficiency-based principles to reduce up to 50% of the total demand and the balance, um, you bulk purchase green power. And that, that enables the building to be are carbon neutral in operation. Um, the embodied piece is all about materiality. So it's all about what materials you use, where they come from, how they're transported, uh, and it, that, is, that is ongoing. So we know that concrete is one of the, um, the worst culprits. Um, the processes that go into making concrete are, are very carbon intensive. It's one of the built environment's largest contributors to um, global emissions uh, and so there are moves towards low carbon concrete alternatives there's some 
quite exciting emerging technologies there. I recently went on a study tour to Norway and Sweden. We were looking exclusively at timber buildings, um, timber being a renewable resource that's actually a carbon sink um, is a really great way to get significant reductions in embodied carbon. Unfortunately, uh, in Australia in particular, I'm not sure of the New Zealand um, regulatory context, but our fire-related regulations really inhibit um, apartments in particular being built out of timber. I kind of wonder, though, because the physics of fire in Australia and the physics of fire in Sweden and Norway are, are, are the same, right? We're living on the same planet, and yet um, their fire regulations are able to support uh, extensive um, built form outcomes in timber, significant reductions in embodied carbon, and yet we're still unable to quite get our head around that. Um, I think there's an opportunity for some change there for sure. Ooh. Yes, and there's a bunch of people in New Zealand and I'm sure in Australia who grow a lot of trees yeah. who'd quite like to see them um, house people uh, rather than just sit there. That, that was one of the most amazing things I saw in Sweden on this trip where they, they really have had the Swedish Forestry Act is a really interesting piece of legislation that's encouraged the responsible management and um, and growth of Sweden's forests. And through time, they've managed to develop a verti vertically integrated um, per, per, uh, supply chain uh, timber industry. One of the outputs to that is they're, they're the third largest um, uh, timber supplier in the world and, and, and that then sets them up to be leaders in, in timber buildings at scale and just what, what they're doing um, in off-site manufacturing, advanced manufacturing technologies and, and, and significant reductions in embodied carbon within their built environment really is worth looking more closely at, we feel. I'm always interested in this podcast to look at the economics of uh, whatever we're talking about. And I'm guessing as a developer, an investor, uh, you, you have to think about, you know, can I build this thing and make a buck? And often the business models and the economics of building determine how much fun they are to live in and uh, how much money you have to spend on heating or uh, whether or not you have to have a car, all of those sorts of things. Uh, I'm curious because uh, this idea of medium density living, affordable apartments is, is something we, we struggled with, to be honest, in New Zealand. And uh, we're sort of jealous of some of the developments that have happened in Australia, uh, inner city, Sydney and Melbourne. Could you talk about some of the challenges uh, you had to negotiate to get these 22 apartments in the Nightingale project built because as you suggested at the beginning with the real estate agents saying they had to be two bedroom two bathroom with a car and all that um how did you sort of rework the economics so that you people could have these apartments which are low energy for the long run i.e there's a lower long run cost which sometimes doesn't always get built into the price of uh, any any apartment how, how did you organize the economics for this project yeah, look, the, the economics are fundamental, I guess. That's the, that, that gets to the very heart of, of who we are, what, what our business here versus IP is and what we're seeking to achieve and the way in which we're going about that. So for us, it, it really comes down to the, the detail, right? the devil's in the detail. We look for very specific sites. We, we would say that it is not possible to necessarily build a very high-performing uh, apartment commercially on any block of land in the city. It takes 
it takes a particular block of land, we look for we look for blocks of land that enable us to really get the best bang for buck from passive design principles that we spoke about earlier. So when we buy the right block of land with the right frontage, north-facing frontage um, is, is a great attribute. We're, we're able to really leverage the passive design principles and working in collaboration with the architects in detail with our sustainability team. We do detailed energy modelling analysis, daylight modelling analysis when we're looking to purchase sites. And through that process, we have just developed an approach to the sites that we buy that enables us to deliver, to, to basically reduce the cost that, that it takes us to build significantly higher performing apartments. And that's that's a key to our model. That, that answer doesn't necessarily solve the city's problems, but it, it does say something to, you know, the way we think about where we, where we rezone and where we encourage um, greater density and, and why and how the, the, how the city and planners can play a role in seeking to reduce the economic cost of better quality, higher performing apartments. And we do, we do think there's a role there for the city. It's very complicated and it's in the detail. But again, you know, our business, we're, we're, we're a development business, but we also have our sustainability consultancy that sits alongside us. So we have green building engineers in our team who can run that detailed analysis. And we take an iterative approach and feedback loops are a big part of our process. So when learnings from previous projects are fed into design briefing for future projects and we seek to capture that knowledge and and insert that into our future projects and really that enables us to effectively close the economic gap to achieve significantly higher performance um, at, at, a, at, at, a, at a more reasonable cost essentially. Can you give us an idea of uh, one of those feedback loops that you talk about and how you're able to use that again and again? Yeah, look, the, the, a great example of feedback loops is um, so our, our, the latest project that we've just completed for us in York in South Melbourne, uh, we've, the, the project's been complete now for uh, just on 12 months. Our sustainability team of green building engineers have been undertaking a piece of post-occupancy research. So we've had indoor environment quality sensors in apartments. Uh, they have been running nonstop now for 12 months. They are measuring um, uh, temperature, humidity, carbon dioxide, uh, particulates, noise, light levels. Uh, so they're all measures of indoor environment quality. Um, we correlate that against energy performance. Um, we check actual energy performance against modelled energy performance. Um, and actually the team are, are writing up a piece of research that will be presented down in Hobart um, to a, a building science conference later in the year. But what we're seeking to do is actually see how the building will perform against uh, future climate models. So as we expect global temperatures to increase, how do these high-performance apartments perform when the, the climate's warmer and we have more extreme heatwave events, um, more extreme climatic events? How would we expect these apartments to operate when the power goes off during a heatwave, as an example? What would we expect to see uh, in terms of how the apartments perform from a resilience perspective? And you know, the modelling suggests that it's it's positive and that's a, another one of the added benefits for building better quality buildings, you know, in these more extreme events, occupants are protected and that has real and tangible public health benefits. You know, you, you and I are probably okay, but, 
you know, when you start to look at occupants, either the elderly or the sick or the young who have significantly more narrow um, thermal comfort bands, we, we, we call it, you know, the power going off during a heat wave is, uh, can be terminal. So it's pretty real and, and these buildings um, do have what, it's, what it takes to withstand those sort of events. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Can you give us a, a sense of, you know, how these buildings that you're doing now and that you were testing um, with sensors after, how they're different from, let's say, a 100-year-old apartment in a city apartment yeah. in terms of, you know, let's say we, we heat the planet to three degrees and, you know, we have 45 degrees Celsius days. We're going to have an El Nino this summer and we've seen in July and August in the Northern Hemisphere temperatures extraordinary levels i think it was madrid or barcelona had to put out a warning and hand out bottles of water and do all sorts of crazy things and so give us a sense of how your new buildings are coping with that versus old buildings yeah it's pretty real isn't it I, like we've you know the last 10 20 30 years like as long as i can remember anyway we've we've had these predictions and we've been told and you know, have watching watching shows like Extrapolations, and um, it, it does feel like we're living uh, we're we're living right in the middle of all of this right now. The biggest difference between what we're doing and how buildings would have been built a hundred years ago, and I hear this argument all the time. You know, the old buildings are better and they're they're better quality and blah 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 blah. It's just it's not right. So we we, we work on concepts around air tightness, and so the the more airtight we build the more we can control the indoor environment quality of a building. 
And we use a system called that's mechanical ventilation, essentially. That we, we use systems called energy recovery ventilation units. What they do is because the apartments are so airtight, we're, we're achieving below two air changes per hour. Your standard 100-year-old 100, 100 home might be 20. The entire volume of the house will change uh, by that number in an hour. Um, so that gives you an idea of why in those old houses when you turn the heater off in the middle of winter, within 15 minutes, the house is cold because literally the entire volume of that house is leaking outside. And when that heater's on, you're essentially heating outside the home. With, with the apartments that we build, because they're airtight and we have the energy recovery ventilation system running, that's a passive system. It runs all the time, very low, low wattage, doesn't use much energy, but it brings uh, fresh air in and that fresh air coming in is filtered goes through a filter and then it goes through a heat exchange. So the air going out, the stale air that's expelled, high in CO2, high in humidity, that's expelled passes the air coming in and it exchanges its heat energy. You get a lower delta, right? So the, the temperature of the air actually coming into your apartment might be five degrees below internal temperature. So then your heating system um, and in a lot of cases, not even your heating system, just the fact that you're cooking uh, an apartment's occupied, the TV's on, a computer's on, the lights are on, that, they all emit heat energy. And when you start to build below one air change per hour, um, which is the German passive house standard, uh, and you're installing an energy recovery ventilation system with doors and windows closed in the middle of winter, you don't need a heater if the house is uh, properly occupied. And, that, and this is the biggest difference. So could you ever imagine a 100-year-old home not requiring heating and being at a stable temperature above 20 degrees without heating in the middle of winter? And these are the sorts of results that we're seeing from the apartment project that we've just finished for Oz and York. Um, so we're, we're, we're achieving that standard and we're seeing those sorts of results. I'm curious about the economics of this because uh, sometimes you make changes like this and it means that the actual upfront cost of building a home might be more than, you know, a, a not airtight building uh, without the heat exchanges. And on the face of it, if you're a, an apartment buyer or a seller, uh, you, you want to um, sell it for the most and build it for the least. And uh, also from a, a buyer's point of view, you want the cheapest apartment you can get. But uh, sometimes in these economic models, the actual benefits in the long run of low heating costs or low cooling costs are not in a way embedded into the price. And so you end up with this perverse incentive to build frankly cheap and nasty homes because they're the ones that sell and give you the best margin but how, how do you work through that from your point of view and how does it is does do the incentives into the markets the market way of doing things does it work yeah look there's diff, different segments within the property industry i guess the build to divest space so when you build and sell there's obviously uh, it, it becomes a lot more difficult to justify. We've we've built a, a brand and approach, whether it be with Nightingale or Hip V Height, we've built a brand and an approach that's hung our hat on delivering better quality outcomes to our purchasers and that's what our purchasers expect. Our challenge is to deliver that quality at a price that our purchasers can afford. That's a real challenge. It's something we take really seriously. 
Uh, it does cost more. Um, we do our very best uh, with feedback loops and the like and passive design principles to really reduce that cost and reduce that margin. We don't price gouge. We seek to accept a reasonable profit. We believe in the power of business, but we believe in a, in a rebalanced approach to, I, I guess, the, the profit incentive. So, you know, people, planet, prosperity uh, and, and seeking a more balanced approach somewhere in the middle we think is, is a more sustainable pr- approach longer term. Uh, in saying that, in saying all of that, though, what, what is really interesting at the moment is asset classes. So what we're seeing a lot of in Australia at the moment is built to rent, you know, and other asset classes like aged care, health, education, where a developer owner operator is one in the same. And that's particularly interesting because the capital expenditure piece is well and truly offset by the operational cost savings. So um, we, we've actually done the modelling off one uh, one of the two bedroom apartments in Farrars and York, and you know the annual saving in real terms is you know, in the order of three hundred dollars for the apartment. But if you were to extrapolate that out across a two and a half thousand built to rent, uh, two and a half thousand apartment built to rent portfolio, you know over a ten year period you're looking at circa ten million dollars savings. So you, you know if the capital expenditure is one to two million, we, we say in the order of five percent. Um, you know, it's you're well and truly seeing the the value through that ten year discounted cash flow valuation at, at at year ten, and the economic imperative is there for you to increase your capital expenditure. It is more difficult when you're building and selling, and it takes we we say it takes building a brand from the ground up that has sustainability um, in, inherently uh, embedded in its approach. For the market more broadly, we just need to see um, legislative settings ratchet up. You know, unfortunately, we've been through a process here in Australia where we've, we've had quite a long period of stagnation with regard to the National Construction Code. The NCC 2022 sees a significant performance leap. And what we've just seen from our governments is a, a number of governments delay the implementation of NCC 22 by in excess of six months, it should have already been implemented. And, you know, that's just however many homes get built between now and when NCC 22 is implemented, we're just seeing those significantly poorer energy-saving outcomes and health and wellbeing outcomes locked into those assets for the next 50 years. Buildings last for 50 years. You know, so every building we build that isn't to the increased performance standard will be using more energy, more carbon, and the occupants will be susceptible to uh, the impacts of climate change more than they should have been. And unfortunately, the, the, the arguments being made, you know, by the industry more broadly on, on an economic basis, we're dealing with increased costs. We don't need the, the burden of additional increased costs. We can't, we can't afford it. The industry can't handle it. And at, at what cost do we make those decisions, uh, I think? I think um, it's a very short-term view. And um, we, we definitely do need um, standard support. And businesses like ours, we exist to demonstrate to market that, that better quality is possible. Our sustainability consultancy exists to share that knowledge out to market at scale. That's part of our impact piece. We, we, we undertake relatively small projects ourselves directly, but we're very open with our IP and learning. Part of our impact piece is to share that learning more broadly and to work with suppliers and the like to build, to build the skill base um, and to educate people as to the benefits of building better, such that 
that they as consumers can demand more from the market. Just finally, Liam, sometimes I ask people what they would do if they were the king. <laughs> if if you were able to, you know, change the laws, make decisions about, you know, big infrastructure investments, change the rules around tax and the likes, with the knowledge that our aim is to provide everyone with an affordable, safe place to be that's carbon zero and maybe won't cook the planet, what would you do? You mentioned the uh, the the wood-framed buildings and the fire regulations. That sounds like one thing. Secondly, your new regulations, the ones that are being delayed, put them in on time. Yeah. But what else would you do? Uh, the big one that's missing is a, is a price on carbon. Carbon's an externality. It's the reason we're in this mess. We don't price the impact and the, the true costs of the pollution that we emit. Yeah, that, that, that's the big one, right? Like if that if that happened tomorrow, all of a sudden there'd be pressure on the fire regular gate regulations to support t- timber construction, right? Like it, it'd, it'd flow through in that way and all of a sudden it, it would put pressure on uh, business as usual with concrete construction and all of a sudden there's an impetus for uh, the, tech- the emerging technologies to get the funding they need to scale up. We already have uh, really great examples of, low carbon concrete, but it's an inertia piece, right? So in Melbourne, there's I think there's two batching plants that that actually produce uh, low carbon concrete. So the industry, the inertia would be overcome with a, with an effective price on carbon. Uh, that's the big one. Um, the second one for me, and, and it relates to affordability, and we, we bang our heads up against this one all the time, sort of just this idea that density is bad and there's a fortunate cohort in our cities that own property and have done uh, so for a long time. They've done very well out of owning that property and they're not particularly open to change and that is inhibiting our ability to effectively upgrade our cities for the low-carbon future, the the more affordable low-carbon future, the more connected low-carbon future that I, I think my generation and the generations below me require in order for our economies to to be effective in the 21st century and beyond. The idea that the white picket fence should be protected at the expense of future prosperity is one of the biggest issues of our time, in my in my opinion. It, it is killing us. So what do you say to, you know, your, your uncle or guy who's in your squash club or someone who is in this position, they're living in the picket fence in a city, standalone, single-storey home, and they've just voted in a councillor to, to stop uh, densification or they've uh, signed a petition to uh, stop the uh, car parks being taken away or whatever. What do, you, what do you say to them, you know, over, over a beer or a coffee? Oh, look, I, I get it because it's, it's not as if, you know, the development industry has shrouded itself in, in, in positive examples that we can point to. <laughs> there, are, there are plenty of examples of, of what we shouldn't be building. Unfortunately, they're the majority of, of, of examples that we can point to. But I, I do think, though, that... that um, we spend a lot of time in the way that we think about planning in sort of protecting against those long, lowest common denominator outcomes and we don't spend nearly enough time thinking about how we can incentivize best practice because 
I got to talk a lot about this. At the end of the day, most developers, they're, they're speculators, they're, they're experts at getting from A to B in the, in the quickest way possible. That's essentially the skill set you need to be a good developer, uh, unfortunately. But So if, if you send a signal like the projects that, that, that we've been involved in that, you know, a seven-and-a-half-star minimum benchmark uh, can achieve all of these really great outcomes and, hey, there's a market of people that really want to buy this and global interest in this idea, you, sh- you should have seen how quickly the average development changed in the inner north of Melbourne. All of a sudden, your stock standard uh, development in the inner north of Melbourne was seeking to voluntarily hit these benchmarks. So it was kind of that copycat result and that's powerful so and, and that's why i argue for why, why we, we should be thinking about how we can better incentivize best practice because those best practice outcomes that seek to move forward if they can be supported we'll get more of them and the more we have the more we can demonstrate to the to the broader base of the market that there's consumer demand and this stuff works we'll get more of it and our cities will be the, the better for that Liam Wallace, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks very much. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.